Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another of Sibylline's podcast series. Today, I'm joined with Rhiannon Phillips, and we will be discussing some of the recent Iranian strikes on Iraq. So Rhiannon, maybe just as a, a brief introduction, obviously, we, we saw around 12 ballistic missile strikes on Erbil in the northern Kurdistan region of Iraq by Iranian forces on the 13th of March. There have been some quite conflicting news stories and different accounts that have emerged around these attacks as well. So maybe you could talk us through what we know about these strikes and what else has been going on in the background. Yeah, thanks, Eloise. So, yeah, as you said, on on the 13th of March, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, and this is kind of one of the core branches of Iran's um, armed forces, claim responsibility for for around, as you said, dozen uh, ballistic missiles, which they alleged were aiming to strike Israeli strategic centres in Erbil. As you said, there's there's definitely been some confusion surrounding their in, intent, and and you know the IRGC have, have gone out and claimed that this these attacks were in retaliation for kind of previous Israeli airstrikes in Syria, which which killed two of their members on the seventh of March. Alternatively, then we we've seen local Kurdish authorities and also U.S. officials actually claim that the ballistic missiles were intended to hit kind of U.S. affiliated entities, and we've seen that. Whilst the strikes didn't initially hit the new U.S. consulate that's based there, it certainly hit surrounding buildings and was very, very close to it. This has actually come from the General Kenneth McKenzie from the U.S. Central Command, and he's kind of noted that he doesn't believe in this Israeli smokescreen. So there's there's kind of a lot of conflicting narratives going on. Certainly at first glance, the the timing and location uh, was slightly unusual. Um, If we look at kind of a, a wider assessment of the geopolitical situation, and kind of current regional dynamics that, that's happening at the moment, there are certainly different kind of possible motivations and reasons behind the attacks and, and Iranian intent. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that, Rhiannon. A really good introduction and touching on all of these conflicting accounts that we've obviously seen emerge in the last week or so. I think a couple of interesting points to pick up on there that you've alluded to. There was a, an official US statement saying that we have no indications that the attack was directed at the United States and that that came from the White House. So I think that's pretty interesting as well with all of these accounts of potential targeting of supposed Israeli strategic centres, which, as you as you rightly said, is what the IRGC claimed that was. It also comes at an interesting time, given that I think in the last few weeks there have been quite a few very public sort of trading of aggressive rhetoric between Iran and Israel, with Iranian factions claiming that they've released you know, purported plans from Mossad agents targeting Iranian nuclear plants, such as the Fordow plant. This seems to be, I think, a bit more of a trend, the fact that these are these are becoming very public, these kind of claims. Typically, this, this was a very much a shadow war, whereby sabotage attacks or even cyber attacks were discovered maybe slightly later than the actual events themselves. So clearly, the shadow war, I think, is, is coming to the forefront a little bit more. The US statement, again, being interesting, saying that it wasn't actually directed at the US. I think there were also some, some quite conflicting accounts suggesting that this may have actually been directed at local Iraqi forces, which I think is something that we'll come on to a little bit later. There were some sources that suggested that some of the projectiles hit a villa owned by a businessman who is linked to the Barzani family, which is quite a prominent uh, family in the Kurdistan region and, and linked to the KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party. 
This, I think, is again quite interesting given the context of, of what is going on in Iraq, just in terms of government formation. Rhiannon, I wondered if you could maybe touch on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as you said, Iran has, has long been embedded in Iraqi politics and, and has kind of had its, its hands in many pies in, in terms of ethno-religious interests in the country. And, you know, Iranian-backed militia is still highly operative in Iraq, and, and they often kind of seek to exploit this kind of deepening instability. And, and as you said, this comes at a really, really interesting time in, in kind of Iraqi politics. So, you know, this comes as Iran-backed parties and, and Shia groups really struggle to maintain political influence. Um, they suffered really, really heavy losses in, in the very contentious October 2021 elections. And so we can see this as kind of an extension of their use of aggression to, to further their political influence um, and representation in, in the new government. And, and this is definitely not uncommon. You know, we, we only have to look at the attack that took place uh, on the Iraqi Parliament Speaker's House on the 25th of January this year. And, and whilst there kind of wasn't an outward claim of responsibility for this, for this attack, the kind of local authorities noted that these rockets were, were fired from, from areas in the Ambar province. And we know that these areas are, are kind of really controlled by pro-Iran uh, groups such as Kitab, uh, Hezbollah. And, and so this is really kind of worth noting. And the kind of symbol that the Iraqi parliament speaker holds is it, it basically solidified kind of Sunni representation into the government. And so, so this is a definite point. And then questions might be asked about why, why Kurdistan and, and why, why northern Iraq, rather than kind of their, their use of, of Baghdad as the, as the primary target. And so we kind of have to look at, as, as you said, that there were, there were uh, reports suggesting that this, this house that was targeted was kind of affiliated to the Barzani clan. And so we have to look at the role that the Kurdish parties can play in this, this formation of government as well. And so Iran will, will kind of stop at nothing to, to maintain this political influence via kind of proxy networks. And just as a, as a major flashpoint, you know, the, as, as we said earlier, there, there were kind of confusions over the timing of this, etc. But when you do a bit more of a deep dive, it's worth noting that there is a very important flashpoint coming up. And that's the, the vote for the election of the president of the republic. And this comes on the 26th of March. So, you know, as noted, the elections were in October. And it's only now that, that the Council of Representatives are actually voting for a president. And this is mostly inclusive of Kurdish candidates. So we have kind of President Baham Saleh, who is the who's the current uh, president of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. And then we also have uh, Ahmed Khalid, who is uh, he's kind of uh, the interior minister of the Kurdistan Democratic Party running. And so th this is kind of a real key flashpoint. And then from here, once that president is elected, the kind of main block, which is the Al-Sada block, will have approximately 30 days to kind of designate a new government. And so I think we can really expect to see kind of an uptick in sectarian based violence and attacks in, in the coming days and weeks. And, you know, with this new information, it kind of it doesn't seem so out of the blue per se. And we have to really look at the narrative that this is kind of another ploy and, and effort by Iran to kind of uh, extend their influence over Iraqi politics. It, it can't be kind of missed out. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to touch on, just the fact that, you know, Iran actually is is incredibly concerned about maintaining its influence in Iraq. So it, in some respects, it doesn't matter so much whether these were intended to target supposed Israeli targets, um, US-linked targets, or indeed whether it was motivated more by the complex um, sort of domestic politics playing out in Iraq. Clearly, Iran's significant anxiety with regards to Iraq is maintaining its influence. And I think, as you said, you, you know, there have been some interesting flashpoints already and, and some coming up with regards to um, nomination of the president. I think in the last few weeks as well, We've seen quite a few or at least a couple IRGC commanders visiting Iraq since early February. 
meeting Mokotadwa um, Sadar, who is the one who is, is very much holding all the power in terms of government formation at the moment. So Iran clearly is incredibly concerned about whether it will be able to preserve its influence through its proxy networks, as, as you've rightly said. So with these kind of flares occurring amid, obviously, the question that I think is on everyone's lips with um, the nuclear talks with Iran at the moment, what do you think are the implications there? Do you think there are any implications? And do you think we could see a return to the kind of tit-for-tat hostilities that we've witnessed over the last few years? Yeah, so I, I definitely don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, such flares have occurred amidst a, a major kind of stalling in nuclear talks that we've seen. So in, in the last week or so, we've seen EU officials basically confirm the suspension of nuclear deal talks with Iran and other signatories. And they've, they've cited kind of unresolved external factors as of the 11th of March. And alongside this, we saw the return of, of Tehran's chief negotiator actually go back to Iran supposedly to kind of discuss a series of points with experts but you know no further information has been disclosed at the same time you know you can't ignore that we've had a series of russian requests and and demands that have certainly kind of complicated this process this includes a series of of guarantees that they want that their trade will will not be interrupted uh, with iran in the aftermath of their their military invasion of, of ukraine Whilst this is kind of a key sticking point we we also have to look uh, beyond russia as well and, and look that you know, specifically just with Iran and Washington, there are a number of different sticking points as well that, that threaten to complicate negotiations. Aside from the recent missile strike, we kind of have this guarantee from Iran that they want, you know, no US president to be able to unilaterally kind of leave a future deal, especially after anxieties with former President Trump basically quitting the deal. And then also there's, you know, ongoing disagreements between kind of the International Atomic Energy Agency and Iran to be able to access undeclared sites. And so, you know, we, we can really see kind of a buildup of sticking points after weeks of apparent kind of positive of talks between signatories. So, as we said, the missile strikes definitely occur kind of at a very, very important turning point in, in the nuclear talks. Despite this, we have seen actually just this morning and last night kind of efforts from Washington to, to de-escalate kind of tensions in, in terms of pushing forward with the talks. It's actually, you know, the Biden administration have come out last night and this morning said that they're considering removing the IRGC from the foreign terrorist organization blacklist and this seemed quite bizarre timing considering the IRGC strikes on Iraq so there's lots of kind of contentious kind of issues going on here as well and I guess what this shows is is that you know despite everything the US is, is really really keen to kind of get to move forward with with these talks particularly as we've seen kind of flexes of Iran's missile capabilities so it is kind of, again, this balance of, of Iran trying to kind of globally re-engage and then also how far their protectionist policies will go. And then obviously as a separate point, we've got kind of massive frustration from, from Iran's side as talks are stalling and, and it's in their interest for these to get back on track. You know, despite this kind of hardline rhetoric that we've got from Iranian government, they are as keen uh, as the US to, to kind of lift these sanctions due to massive domestic unrest, particularly following, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and, and a really, really hard winter period. You know, protests are becoming increasingly kind of triggered by domestic issues and, and socioeconomic issues within, within Iran. And a trend that we've seen is kind of as anti-government sentiment increases and spreads throughout Tehran we, we, and, and wider Iran, We've seen kind of the IRGC and, and security forces kind of really, really engage in, in more hostile activities abroad. And so this could this could be a possible explanation for these kind of missile strikes as well. It could be it could be kind of a wake up call for, for Washington and, and just 
amongst amongst many narratives, competing narratives going on, it definitely does kind of show that that Iran is perhaps more willing kind of continue these nuclear talks than than they seem on the set on surface level. Thanks, Rhiannon. I mean, I was actually going to follow that up with a question on um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that plays in. But I think in some respects, you've you've kind of answered that there, I think, particularly from a sort of Western and you know European perspective. Currently, concerns are, are obviously very much with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and concerns regarding Russia and, and where Russia will stop. This has definitely superseded, obviously, concerns over Iran. And I think particularly given the instability in global energy markets, I think that's why, as, as you rightly said, we've seen this a sort of flurry of diplomatic activity with the US suggesting that it could introduce these concessions, which would be which would be huge for Iran. And at the same time, obviously, with the release of UK hostages in return for obviously the payments um, of, of 400 million to Iran from the UK, that's obviously a long-standing issue um, with regards to equipment, the Challenger tanks. So I, th- I think you know this recent sort of flurry of diplomatic activity. It, it doesn't seem coincidental. The timing, clearly, you know, the US and its NATO allies in the West are very concerned about Russia as opposed to Iran, and I think that is that is potentially what's what's leading to this this kind of more, I guess, conceding or con- um, conciliatory approach from from all parties. But I guess we will. We will have to wait and see. I think in the meantime, there is definitely this risk of further Iranian hostilities just because of all these factors that we've we've been discussing. And clearly, Iraq remains a major concern for Iran in terms of maintaining its its sort of regional prowess that it's been building up and trying to build up and maintain for decades. So despite that, despite these sort of uh, tentative suggestions of progress in the nuclear talks, Rhiannon, do you think we could see these tit-for-tat attacks continue? Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely, you know, worth noting that that whilst Washington and Iran are, are keen to kind of get a nuclear deal underway, it's it's definitely worth noting that that this is not kind of the same with the rest of regional players and particularly in terms of, of Israel. You know, they have been quite public in their criticism of, of the nuclear deal and, and what this means for kind of regional security and emboldened Iran. And whilst this is the same for Saudi Arabia, what we've seen is, is kind of Israel's criticism has resulted in kind of a, a return for tip for tat. So whether this be kind of low level attacks on critical infrastructure or in the form of kind of cyber attacks, which primarily targets critical or, or government infrastructure. And this is definitely retaliatory as well. So the, these are kind of definite tip for tat hostilities, as we've seen in, in the last week. We've seen kind of the, the Israel National Cyber Directorate report that they had one of their biggest actually uh, cyber hacks targeting, again, government websites and telecommunication centres. And this was later claimed um, by uh, Iranian local news outlets. And, and so I think we can, in the next kind of couple of days and weeks, I think there will definitely be kind of a continued trajectory of, of cyber attacks and, and low-level attacks on critical infrastructure. And we can expect this for the coming days and weeks. Thanks, Rhiannon. And I think that's probably a, a good place to leave it for today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll hand over to our associate analyst for Mina Anastasia, who will talk us through some of the events to watch in the coming week or so. The Syndicate for Employees of Lebanon's state-owned power provider, Electricity of Lebanon, is prolonging their strike action until 22nd of March, amid persistent disputes with authorities regarding labour rights and salaries. Originally initiated last week, the strike is likely to continue to generate considerable disruptions to EDL operations and, consequently, electricity supplies around the country. This will exacerbate existing energy insecurity for consumers and businesses over the coming week. Meanwhile, on the 23rd of March, the Pakistan Day national holiday will commemorate the adoption of the first constitution of Pakistan. 
Opposition parties plan to hold a large anti-government rally in Islamabad to protest various ongoing issues such as high inflation with a strengthened security presence increasing the likelihood of violent clashes. Also next week on the 26th of March, Zimbabwe is set to hold its by-elections. In the coming week, activists supporting the incumbent party are likely to attack attendance at opposition rallies. Accusations of fraud following opposition losses are likely to drive protests following the announcement of, of results. Meanwhile, in Southeast Asia, Malaysia plans to reopen its borders on the 1st of April. International travellers who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 will be permitted to enter the country without undergoing mandatory quarantine upon arrival. Authorities will also ease restrictions on domestic businesses, including limits on opening hours and capacity. The move represents part of the government's transition to treating COVID as endemic. Thank you for that, Anastasia, and thanks everyone for joining us. We, we look forward to hearing from you soon. And please do, if you do have any questions, get in touch with us at info at Thanks for listening all and speak to you all soon.